Benjamins, baby. Uh. Uh-huh. Yeah. It's all about the Benjamins, baby. Well, not quite. I'll be talking about more than just the Benjamins. Welcome to Fintech Beat, where finance, technology, and policy come together. I'm your host, Chris Brummer, and the future of finance is now. Joe Lubin is, by virtually any account, the man. The guy is the co-founder of Ethereum, the blockchain-supporting Ether, a cryptocurrency with the second largest market cap in the world, and he's the co-founder of Consensus, and as such has been a pathbreaker in developing smart contract applications for the Ethereum blockchain. But there's a lot of change underway in his business, including a massive effort to upgrade the Ethereum blockchain in order to support greater speed and scale. Now, I had invited Joe to speak at Washington's Fintech Week, a conference I ran this year with CQ Roll Call, Georgetown Law, and the Institute of Financial Markets, and he agreed to not only speak at the conference, but to also sit down with me on the sidelines for a special conversation for the podcast. I had, like everyone else, heard of the guy, but I wanted to know just what changes he had in mind for Ethereum. Plus, I knew he'd have more than a couple of interesting thoughts on Libra, Facebook's cryptocurrency, and a unique perspective on the CFTC's new announcement that Ether comprises a commodity. How you gonna upgrade me? It's higher than number one. You know I used to beat that block. Now I bees the block. We are just delighted here on Fintech Beat to have Joe Lubin, the co-founder of Ethereum, uh, here with us today to talk a lot about his, his new project and this upgrade to the Ethereum blockchain and really sort of the questions that it's posing, particularly for financial regulators and others. Uh, Joe, thanks so much for joining the program. Thank you. How are you? So I guess the first question that I have for you is this Ethereum 2.0 project. I mean, a lot of people here, in, not only here in Washington, D.C., but really internationally, are trying to think through you know, what this means um, uh, from a market standpoint, from, uh, from, from a regulatory standpoint. Maybe you can walk through, in very simple terms, uh, what you're trying to do and, and, and when you're trying to do it. So Ethereum 2.0 just brings greater capacity uh, to... Um, the Ethereum platform. Uh, Ethereum 1.0 uh, has been running for a few years and uh, um, it uh, has enabled tremendous innovation. It's enabled us to figure out how to build decentralized applications and build companies that build decentralized applications. It's enabled us to, uh, to think about what having a base trust layer for the planet might look like and uh, uh, a global settlement layer for different assets around the planet. Uh, uh, it's enabled us to build out what we're calling the open or decentralized finance ecosystem, where we're seeing many different kinds of systems from lending, borrowing, subscriptions, payments, price table currencies, insurance, um, prediction markets, etc. Um, but Ethereum 1.0 uh, doesn't have the privacy and the confidentiality that we would like to see it have, and it doesn't have the scalability that we need uh, in order to uh, make more and more use of the system. And so uh, we're already addressing those concerns in the Ethereum 1.0 technology uh, with the different mechanisms for privacy and confidentiality. And we have mechanisms at a layer above Ethereum 1.0. We, we call it layer two. 
that enables us to to do thousands or tens of thousands of transactions per second for certain kinds of use cases. But uh, uh, we still have this opportunity uh, to evolve Ethereum 1.0 to Ethereum 2.0 uh, and um, drastically increase the scalability, the number of transactions per second um, uh, in the system. So when you get to this question of, of, of scalability, you know, this, I guess this idea that under the, the sort of 1.0 system of, of a lot of blockchain uh, consensus mechanisms, so, you know, the, the proof-of-work system, that transactions are pretty slow and that this, the computing power is, is slow. How, uh, you, you know, what, how do you plan on, on solving that problem uh, I know you've talked a little bit about uh, before about a, a proof of stake system. How does a pro- what in your mind is a proof of stake system, and how does this solve the scalability issue? Proof of stake doesn't directly solve the scalability issue, although it um, it does facilitate us solving the scalability issue. So, proof of work uh, requires people to. Uh, generally, in some cases, get uh, specialized hardware um, and burn lots of electricity and do lots of wasted computation in order to keep all the computers on the network in sync with one another, one another in consensus with one another. Um, and keeping them all in sync with one another is where you get the trust characteristic of these networks from. Uh, so... Uh, Bitcoin and currently the Ethereum network uh, both make use of proof of work, uh, and Ethereum is about to move to Ethereum 2.0, which transitions to proof of stake. So uh, instead of all of that waste and specialized hardware, uh, we replace that with a uh, an economic bond. Uh, essentially, uh, people who have a certain amount of ether uh, can stake. Um, or bond that ether into a smart contract on the Ethereum platform, and that gives them the right to um, receive compensation from the protocol for doing the work of validating transactions and validating blocks on uh, the Ethereum 2.0 network. Um, That sort of system uh, is more secure and more decentralized and far less wasteful than proof of work. Um, It's more secure uh, because, um, or, or it's more um, uh, efficient uh, because uh, people on the network will have much lower barrier to entry uh, to make use of the system, and um, efficiencies of scale uh, are not present on proof of stake uh, where they are present on proof of work systems, and so uh, it will be a a better, uh, more decentralized, more more trusted system. So one of the big news, I know you heard about it, was uh, CFTC Chairman Heath Tarbert, who has said, hey, you know, uh, Ether is a commodity, uh, which uh, was then accompanied by the suggestion that there could be Ether uh, derivatives contracts within six months. Um, how... What do you think about this? I mean, does this impact the way in which you do your job? Do you uh, uh, consider this a good thing that that you could have derivatives products uh, that 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 ultimately reference ether? Ether uh, as a spot commodity is necessary for the operation of the Ethereum platform. Ethereum is a platform for 
decentralized applications, somewhat in contrast to what uh, Bitcoin is, which is a, a platform for cryptocurrency transactions. Uh, Ether can do that, but it, uh, or Ethereum can do that, but uh, it does a whole lot more. Um, and because people are uh, providing their resources to this network to validate transactions and blocks and uh, uh, keep things running on um, either the Ethereum network or collaboration networks built on the Ethereum platform, um, they should get paid uh, for their services. And so um, uh, whether they're getting paid uh, for providing their resources or whether they need to pay um, in order to make use of those resources, uh, they're, they're still uh, effectively risk being taken. And so uh, futures and options are instruments that can enable uh, provision, payment, uh, and uh, risk um, reduction uh, in the use of these networks. The last question had to do with the environment here in Washington, D.C. Uh, there have been big announcements uh, topped off with Mark Zuckerberg's uh, comments about uh, Libra before Congress. How do you view uh, uh, Libra in particular, and uh, how do you think this, this attention is going to impact the crypto industry and your day-to-day -day activities? Um, so I'm, I don't dislike uh, the Libra project per se. I, I think uh, um, projects like it already exist and projects like it, uh, variations of it should exist. Uh, it's essentially a, a price-stable token system. It uh, will enable uh, payments in different kinds of contexts. Um, I think its greatest asset currently is really its greatest liability, uh, and that's Facebook. Uh, with Facebook driving it, it, it really clouds the whole Libra project. Uh, Facebook has its own deep issues with respect to trust, with respect to uh, essentially abuse of people's personal information, um, monetization of people's attention, and addicting people to uh, their system so that they can sell their attention uh, much more often and uh, and uh, at higher prices. And um, uh, essentially, Facebook has been turned by some as a, a negative externality into a a weapon of uh, mass mass social manipulation that uh, has had uh, significant geopolitical effects already. Uh, so marrying everything that Facebook knows about us already uh, with their uh, understanding of our financial transactions and our financial history uh, seems like a terrible idea to me. Uh, that said, um, we should see um, many different systems uh, similar to Libra because uh, they will enable people uh, around the world and nation states around the world uh, to make use of price-stable price currencies, which uh, uh, will enable uh, easier cross-border commerce and uh, better access to price stability uh, where many nations uh, see uh, tremendous volatility in their currencies. Joe Lubin, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Probably the most annoying request I made of Joe Lubin was that he speak to me, well, like I didn't know that much, which could in this case be true. Remember everybody that expertise is relative and not absolute. But somehow the guy delivered, breaking down extremely complicated concepts into bite-sized pieces. But as is ever the case in crypto, there are still plenty of questions. 
It's not just on the small points like the timing of new upgrades, but on the deeper questions about how to operationalize upgrades to blockchains efficiently and what those upgrades, really any upgrades, mean for blockchain governance. And I, for one, will be glued to the Ethereum news channels with bated breath to see how this evolves. Now, some of our listeners may be interested in an even more detailed technical overview of Joe's thoughts on not only Libra, but also the international economy and what a recession could mean for global currencies. So for this podcast, I wanted to leave you with a small excerpt of our conversation during FinTech Week. If you want more, the full discussion can be found on CQ Roll Call's FinTech Beat webpage. One other piece is that um, uh, our money systems, uh, as, as good as they are in, in many different nations, are not so good in other nations, uh, and every one of them throughout history um, has failed. <laughs> um, so the average lifespan of a, of a nation-state currency is about 70 years, uh, and so you get into uh, these systems or these dynamics where um, interest or you know, uh, chopping off little pieces of a coin uh, devalues the currency. And so we are, in my opinion, uh, in uh, an end-of-life scenario with a bunch of the, the currencies around the world. And, uh, um, major as, currencies as well? Or, uh, or so just... major currencies as well. I mean, we're, we are um, moving into... Uh, recession at some point soon um, with the in inversion of the yield curve and central banks around the world don't have a lot of dry powder left in terms of their, their ability to stimulate economies uh, by lowering interest rates because they're very low already uh, some are negative uh, and uh, so we're going to have we're going to see in the next recession um, a movement, a rapid and strong movement into quantitative easing and that's going to further um, uh, devalue uh, the currencies, and it, it can get to uh, non-linear uh, and catastrophic fairly quickly. We could see a contagion. And so um, what I think we might end up seeing is uh, price-stable currencies uh, built on top of nation-state currencies or built on top of nation-state bonds or baskets of commodities or, um, or other um, kinds of constructions. Um, so it would be bad if there was one major one like Libra uh, controlled by um, a international um, entity that has 2.3 or 2.4 billion cyber citizens um, because uh, essentially that entity would, be, would end up controlling the monetary policy for small and medium-sized nations. Um, it would be good to have a bunch of these price-stable currencies that um, facilitated cross-border payments or that were price stable, because uh, many countries don't have price stable currencies. And so uh, the countries themselves, the citizens of those countries would benefit from that. Um, but we need many of those. We need choice. We need different characteristics of them so that uh, uh, your smaller, medium-sized nation has a choice between five or 30 or 100 of these things and, the, and can um, move to one if, uh, or move to other ones if, if one of them goes sideways. So uh, I do, I sort of see a layer two solution uh, for uh, a new monetary regime. I, I'm not an expert uh, in the space at all, but uh, uh, I think we can probably get there and 
uh, sort of rescue the, the monetary systems of the world uh, uh, with this new technology. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to get in touch, just hit me up at Chris Brummer DR. That's at C-H-R-I-S-B-R-U-M-M-E-R-D-R. We'd love to hear from you. Fintech Beat is produced by CQ Roll Call, a leader in nonpartisan political and policy news and analysis for more than 70 years. CQ Roll Call is part of Fiscal Note, a global technology and media company.